The following audio comes from the National Disciple Making Forum by Discipleship.org. The theme was relationships, and Faith International University led a track called Discipling Biblically, the Master Plan Way. Have you signed up for the next National Disciple Making Forum? Every year, disciple makers from across the country and around the world gather together in one place to learn disciple making. Save your seat and register now. You can find a registration link at discipleship.org. At checkout, use promo code PODCAST to get 20% off your tickets. In addition to this podcast, you'll find many other great discipleship resources at discipleship.org as well. Now here's today's track session. My name is Scotty Kessler. I'm the director of the Robert Coleman uh, School of Discipleship at uh, Faith International University and Seminary in Tacoma, Washington. We also have a school of sports ministry there, a number of other schools, but those are the two that I'm affiliated with. Um, I am married. Uh, I was single till I was 48. I'm a college football coach by trade the majority of my adult life. Uh, when I was 48, I was introduced to a young widow, young, younger than I. She was 33. Her husband had died of cancer. He was a church planter, and she had two boys. My best friend, my college roommate, uh, introduced me to her long distance. Uh, we worked out, uh, it worked out so that I could move in the same area. She was in the Minneapolis suburbs. We dated for a year. We married. She had her boys were seven and ten. They're now 23 and 20. One is a college football coach in Spokane, Washington. One is a college football player in Oklahoma City. And together we had a little five-year-old girl, which has been uh, beyond, beyond good. Discipling biblically, biblically the master plan way, what it is and what it isn't is uh, the topic here. Preface, I'm saying this uh, not just because it's, a, I think, a good thing to say. It is what I believe. You don't know me at all, so you can only embrace the hope that this is true. I, I certainly am no expert. I'm flawed. I'm frail. I'm desperate. Uh, I, I am willing to give it my best shot, and the Lord and His goodness will always meet us. If we give Him just a mustard seed, He'll meet us, and He certainly will in our discipleship, our, our spiritual parenting. And though, you know, I'm flawed, uh, nonetheless, we have a position, I have a position and we have a position at the School of Discipleship to do it a certain way now. Everybody parents differently and we celebrate the fact that we have nuanced differences in, in almost every area. And that's true with discipleship also. If you see it as spiritual parenting, then you realize there's as many styles or uh, kinds of discipleship as there are parenting styles and everyone is unique to the uniqueness of the people. There may be certain core truths, and I hope that we uh, are on the same page on the core truths, that the Word of God's a big deal, and that prayer's a big deal, and uh, uh, those are fundamentals that are really non-negotiable if you want to disciple biblically. I'm going to uh, cover a good bit of ground, and, uh, and it may feel like a fire hose a little bit, but the hope is that it would uh, provoke or pick some interest if you certainly want to chat further regarding it. Um, I have a business card up here if you want to call, you want to write, however you want to engage. I'll be around here for the couple of days. We have a, a booth out there if you want to chat about this stuff. Because I'm, I, you know, Dr. Coleman is my mentor. That's kind of how it came about where he uh, became the, uh, the kind of the, the school name, so to speak. It's really to honor him, uh, to advance the kingdom. 
and because my life was transformed through discipleship, I was saved when I was four. I think it was a legitimate conversion. Um, I, was, uh, I walked in a window of transformation through the college football program I was at when I was 22-ish. And so at that point, I think I moved to begin to surrender and, and submission in a deeper way. And then when I was uh, 35, um, I began what, what I would call now discipling. Um, you know, I really had no idea what I was doing because uh, I had never been discipled. I hadn't been mentored in a way that it was a, an intentional strategic relationship where I knew they were doing it and I knew I was getting it. I mean, by accident, we don't recommend parenting by accident. We don't recommend discipling by accident. But that was my story. It happens to be the story of most people. Most people haven't been discipled. They haven't been uh, intentionally and strategically walked with through the ways of the faith. Uh, so that's the frame of reference, and uh, and then I uh, ran into, I had run a master plan of evangelism, which I recommend if you're not aware of it. I encourage you to get it. Encourage you to read it. As was alluded to on the stage today, it's kind of the benchmark book in our generation for uh, for the the uh, the articulation of what Jesus was doing at the twelve. And is there anything there we can see as principles that are applicable in any time, in any culture, with any race, and any age? which we believe is true. And that's our core belief. That's where we work from as a, as a, person, as a personal story and as a, as a director of a school of discipleship. So I'm gonna talk about the what and the why and the how of discipling biblically the master plan way. Um, when I say the master plan way, again, it's simply because this articulation uh, that Dr. Coleman heard from the Spirit of God as he was at Asbury Seminary in the early 60s, working out this as a 28-year-old guy with a number of young seminary students. The notes to that class turned into a book. And the book, as I said, uh, became an articulation of, of principles. There are eight of them in the book, and he really has uh, taken one and, and made it two. So there's really nine when he still teaches on it as a 90-year-old. As a uh, he's still discipling himself. He's been discipling since he was 28. That makes it 62 years that he's worked with generally 12 or more in his seminary settings that long. That's a whole lot of disciples and a whole lot of discipleship. Once I met him accidentally and uh, he was already uh, kind of my uh, de facto mentor, discipler, and uh, I happened to be in Hawaii coming back from somewhere and he was going to somewhere and we crossed in the hallway literally you know, he was in Chicago at the time. I was working out of, I think it was St. Louis area. And I run into my mentor in the world in a Honolulu airport walking through the same double doors. It was pretty stinking cool. And uh, uh, we actually had seats then on a, on a jumbo jet right behind one another, which was also kind of weird good. But I, I said, what are you doing, Dr. Cohen? He said, what are you doing? He said, I just been, he said, I just been in Ceylon and I'd been in South Korea working with one of my boys. He calls his disciples his boys. Working with one of my boys. He's pastoring a Presbyterian church. They're the largest in South Korea, 350,000. That's what I did. And, <laughs> and, and, and it struck me, and I thought about that later. You know, he's plowing away as best he can, scrambling, because he'd never been discipled as a 28-year-old, and then started just walking, started walking without really any oversight of another human, um, but he gave it his best shot, and stuff happens when you, when you have the power of God within you, and you turn to it and rely on it, stuff happens, and it did happen, and it turns out where you know, the, the power and the impact on one man or woman when the God of the universe climbs inside their body is a pretty unbelievable deal. Uh, it was alluded to on the stage just now, and that is so true, that if we just allow him to break us out of that 
jar of clay and out of that perfume bottle, which has no value as long as the perfume's inside it, but once the, perf once the jar is broken and the perfume comes out, then we get the aroma. But the aroma doesn't come until it's broken, which has to do with prayer and fasting and all that other stuff. And that really is the game. That really is the game, in our opinion. And uh, I'm going to share with you a number of concepts. Uh, we believe them. They're our convictions. And we're committed to them and we're practicing them. But you're welcome to disagree, number one. And we're not saying this is the way. It's a way. It's the way for me, but I couldn't speak of it being the way for you. That's what you've got to find out from the Holy Spirit. All I'm going to do is throw out some things and you can pick and choose uh, from a smorgasbord of what you like and fits and what you agree with or practice or however that works. So, um, uh, you know, they asked us to share our position and so that's what I want to do. The what of discipleship, the definitions, what, why, and how. The definitions are pretty agreed upon with those in this conference. They talk about it upstage for a number of years. A, a disciple is a learner or a follower, and it's also described in the, in the Greek as apprentice. So there's this aspect where it's action. Does that make sense? An apprentice actually acts. He doesn't just listen and learn. He's not a learner in terms of passive. He's a learner in terms of aggressive, and so he's an apprentice. And then the discipleship is really the application of making disciples. Now, for the record, if you want the notes, I realize a lot of you are note-taking. You don't need to do it. I'll send you the notes if you want them so you can listen and not get caught right. And if you want to, just let me know. I got a card up there. Just email me and I can get it to you however we want to do that. Evangelism is proclamation of the gospel. So we see discipleship. This would be a Dr. Coleman thought. And, and it's also uh, our thought. I think it's, I think it's biblical. Um, we see discipleship and evangelism as the, as the same root. They're the same thing. You can't separate them. You can't separate them any more than you can separate a wedding day from the marriage. You can't separate the wedding. You can, but that would be somewhat problematic because you have to have a wedding date in, in order to have a marriage. But if you have a great wedding date and a bad marriage, that's not a good plan, right? And you have to have a birth date in order to have a life. But if you have a birth date that's great, everybody's excited, they send out things, baby announcement, all that stuff, and the life is, is not good, if it's wicked and destructive and abusive, you don't go back and bring out the, the, the birth announcements. And when you have a, a wedding that was fun and cool and memorable and all our friends there and the, and the marriage fell apart and destroyed people and, and generations, you don't break out the wedding book and look at the pictures. Is that right? They're linked together and for it to work the way it's supposed to work, they have to be integrated. And so evangelism discipleship is what we call a great commission lifestyle. It's a lifestyle. It's not what we, we do. It's who we are. It's who we are. Completely different, completely different articulation or particularly different thought. It's two sides of the same coin. It's the same coin. It's one coin. Evangelism, discipleship are one coin. There's two distinct sides. One we call a heads and one we call a tail. But they are all the same coin. They have to be viewed that way because when you separate it, it messes the stuff up. If somebody gets led to the Lord, this is America in general stereotype. They get the led to the Lord, led to the Lord we get a notch on our belt, uh, we put measurables up, we say how many people are saved or baptized. This, those people don't stay in the faith. That ain't a good deal. If they go to hell, but they at one point had raised their hand and come up and wept at the altar, and they go to hell, that's not a win. There's four seeds described in Matthew 13, the parable of the sower. We gotta grasp that, because if you don't grasp that, then you see the wedding is the whole deal and not the marriage. You see, the birth is the whole deal and not the life.
and you see that event, that one-time thing that was illegitimate at the moment, and, and you get deceived because that first seed got stolen by Satan briefly after. It's not a good deal. The second seed, the soil wasn't deep, and it went down and it died. The third seed tended to live. It did have something that allowed it to live, but it got choked by the world, so it was unfruitful. And the fourth seed uh, was a tenfold, hundredfold. Does that make sense? The fourth seed is the one that he will. That's what he wills, is the fourth seed. But that seed, that guy was converted that first seed. He was converted at least to the visible appearance, but he got stolen. It got stolen. I'd contend that out of that Matthew 13 passage, those first two guys are separated from God for eternity according to the language. Those other two are with Jesus, but one is like one escaping the flames. You know that Bible verse, they get, like they escape the flames? That guy's choked. He has no fruit. He's like the guy with the talent that kept it, kept it tight, and then when, when the, uh, the master came back and asked what he did with it, he said, I, I, I was afraid, and so I didn't do anything with it. That wasn't a positive thing, the way that, that the master articulated back to him protecting that seed that was choked. Does that make sense? And so our target, our target is the fourth knuckle. It's the only viable, acceptable target. Just like if you have physical kids or if you wish someday to have physical kids, your goal is that they have a life that's uh, fruitful, right? Hopefully eternally fruitful and, 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 and blesses, Abraham, uh, Genesis 12, that it blesses and, and you'll be blessed to be a blessing. That's our desires. And we have to have high expectations. We need to have high expectations of ourselves and of others with also the fullness of grace. That we're humans and we're scrambling up the food chain. Does that make sense? And so we talk about this. Our target in discipleship is that people walk with God for a lifetime, finish strong, reproduce and multiply. Picture this. Walking with God is a hard thing. Scripture describes it as a narrow road and wides the path for destruction, right? So apparently there's a lot less in the, in the club than there are outside the club. Does that make sense? I'm using club as a metaphor, right? So walking with God is difficult. You got a subset of the population. Some people think it's a low percentage, it's like 10 -ish. I don't, I don't know how that works on my board game, but, but it's, it's smallish. Does that make sense? So walk with God is one thing, but to walk with God for a lifetime is another thing. A lot of people walk with God, but they don't do it for a lifetime. And then, uh, and then there's another subset out of that little sliver where they finish strong. They don't finish strong. They finish winding down. They finish, they retire spiritually just like they retire physically. Part of that is the problem of the people that don't see heaven as their home and earth as a hotel they're checking in and out of. Part of it is we don't have high expectations for those people. I got five old women that are 85 to 96 on my prayer team. They have nothing to do. Their bodies can't even function super well, but they can pray. I got one is just like the war room movie gal, which I, I, I send in prayer requests multiple times each day, all the time, because it's their vision and mission that they finish strong, because they got a lot of time and they got a lot of vision and they can leverage their experience to advance the kingdom with their mouth. When we talk about the world, we say everybody's got to go to the world. You go with your feet or you go with your mouth, but everybody goes with the mouth as prayer. Does that make sense? So you're either going there short or long term, or you're praying long term with a lot of vision. We're thinking about that all the time because this is all about the world because it's his heart for the world, which means if his heart is in us, then we have his heart. Here's something we say to help us think about that. If you have evangelism, you may have no discipleship. Does that make sense? You can have absolute evangelism, legitimate, apparently successful evangelism, visible converts, and have zero discipleship, which means there's no child rearing. 
which means there's no plan, which means the chance of that seed becoming a fourth seed fruitful, hundredfold, super, super small. Super, super small, right? Just like if we had a baby, it's crass, but just metaphor. If we had a baby and she was just on the side of the curb and nobody wanted her, etc., the chance of that baby somehow getting in a, in a, in a system where she is taken care of well and, and experiences the blessed nurturing that God would ordain, the chances are, are small, are they not? Right? Compared to one who'd grow up in a, in a two-parent healthy family structure with community, that's what God willed for every child, every newborn, every adopted child, everyone that comes into the faith or has a recognition even after they've walked with God for a block of years but never were parented. Most of the people that I work with are orphans. Orphans, I mean, they were saved at some juncture. They may be 15 now or 55, but they've never been parented. You know what I mean? They've never had somebody responsible for them. We see discipleship as a responsibility between somebody to care for somebody younger, somebody older in the faith. It may be one day caring for somebody younger in the faith. Uncles and aunts are helpful too, right? I have a bunch of uncles and aunts because my parents had a lot of kids. And you can't have too many good uncles and aunts. But you really kind of only have one set of parents, isn't that right? And the parents are responsible, but the uncles and aunts are available. Those are two different guys. When my five-year-old, when she was two or one, and when she's crying and needs to be fed, or if she pooped her pants and everybody knows it, who goes and changes the diaper? Not the neighbors. Not even the uncle and aunt. The uncle and aunt love that baby. They love her. They love her. But the parents go because one's responsible, the other's available. Most of the spiritual parenting we do in the local church is, here's a Bible, here's the small group, give you a call to invite you sometime, wish you well. We'll see you next week and on Wednesday maybe, and we'll give you a little booklet that you read on your own in a Bible. You can't even figure out some of the wording depending on the translation. And we expect somehow that newborn is going to grow up and be functional. Well, they had nobody walking with them, changing their diapers, cleaning them up when they threw up. And new believers will barf and puke a lot, you know what I mean? <laughs> I mean, we still do it as adult believers. But who's there to change the diaper? Who's there to walk with them? Who feels responsible and who knows that somebody's there to care for them that they know is there? Not, I'm available, let me know if you have trouble. That'd be a bad plan. Can you imagine me parenting my five-year-old like that? I'm going to run around. I'll see you maybe before you go to bed. Give me a ring if you have any need during the day, five-year-old. And we look at that, we laugh because it's like, that's insane. Well, that's what we do in the church. We're insane. We're insane to think we can get fourth knuckle people who come to the faith legitimately without somebody responsible to care for them. In particular, in the early years, when that Satan wants to snatch that seat, because they go home to an abusive home. They go home to a single parent deal where the person has to work so much they aren't even there. You know what I'm saying? Some people, that's all they can do. But it's insanity in our opinion, of what the local church in America does with newborns or orphans who come into the church, your church, for the first time. They don't know anybody. They, they don't even have any fundamentals, no spiritual habits. They do believe in God. They do love Him as best they can, but they have no tools to walk with God for a lifetime. Finish strong. Does that make sense? Now here's the other, reproduce, that's like off the charts, freaky, let alone multiply. Okay, so we have subsets all the way along, subsets, walk with God, 
excuse me, walk with God for a lifetime, finish strong, reproduce and multiply. They, those stages, which are all necessary to get to the point of being the hundredfold seed guy, they all have to be taken care of with great care. Delicate situations, isn't that true? Even the testimony of the gal who sang was saying, here she is, she's walked in the Lord. Seems like, my sense was a long time. She reaches one event where God doesn't do something she thought he should do and she's ready to commit suicide with pills. You understand the fragility of a seed? Even one that's been in the ground and is starting to sprout and has been there a while? Hey man, this is a dicey game. The Bible calls it a war. Satan wars against your soul, wants to steal, kill, and destroy. He's serious and supernatural. What are we going to do about that? And do we think about the young facing that onslaught without anybody there to protect and provide for them the same as we might for our child? I'm rambling now a little bit, and I'll just trust the Holy Spirit with that. Here's going to be a key thing in my discipleship. To the degree, tell me your names. Chandler. Chandler. To the degree, if I'm discipling Chandler, to the degree that he believes that I love him as if he was my own, because he is. I got two boys. They're 20 and 23. I was married late, as I said, and my wife had them before me, so America would call them stepsons. They ain't stinking stepsons. They're my kids. They're no more or less my kids than my five-year-old who has my physical DNA in them. My disciple guys know that I am not only available, I am responsible and I am for you and we're going to make it whatever it takes. And they feel incredible loyalty because I feel like they're mine. And for my wife it was difficult because I'd say something like, hey, um, Johnny's getting married today, I got a pup to and she's saying, but you got, it's, but this, this is my son. This is my son. It's not Johnny that I coached in college. It's my son. Does that make sense? To the degree, if you do it as a job, then you're going to get exactly what you don't want. But if you do it as a heartbeat on behalf of your father who died for you, it's got a chance to have some traction. Does that make sense? So we're looking for a heart of a discipleship. Evangelism without discipleship. Is, is, it's, it's, I don't even have words to describe it. It's impossibility. But where you have evangelism, you may not have discipleship. But where you have discipleship biblically, you will have evangelism. You will have evangelism if you're discipling biblically. If you're biblically evangelizing, that doesn't mean there's any correlation between your discipling. The why. Why do we disciple? That was the what. Here's the why. Um, and this, I remember this was talked on the stage last uh, year by, I think, Jim Putnam. You know, the why is uh, obedience. He said, go make him. So it's an obedience. But it's got to be more than that. It's got to be more than that. It's got to be out of love. It's got to be out of the first commandment of love. Love for God who died us and gave his life up for us. Who we have surrendered to if we want obedience. Love compels us, the scriptures say. Paul said, love compels me. It compels me. Love has to compel us to disciple. Otherwise, it's going to be a job. It'll feel like a job, and they'll smell it's that to you, and at that point, there'll be a breakdown. The how of discipleship, how we do it, this is where it gets real tricky. You know, if we polled everybody here, the what of discipleship, people would be absolutely in the ballpark, sound. And the why, people would realize it's a commandment. And, and if they thought about it, they'd say, shoot, yeah, it's got to be driven by love. But the how is just like the how in parenting, and this is spiritual parenting. The how is where there's lots of variety. There's lots of variety, lots of different ways. 
as many how-tos as there are people practicing it, I'd say. What I want to share with you is, is, is our plan. It, it's, it's my plan and it's our plan as a school. This is how we talk about it. This is how we do it. It's our practice. It's our commitment. Again, as I said, and I want to reiterate this, I'm dogmatic about it for me, but, but you're welcome and blessed to do it however the Lord wants you to do it. Does that make sense? So please understand. I feel strongly because it's the way for me, but it's only a way. Dr. Coleman disciples are different than I do. I was in his morning group of men in Chicago, Trinity International or Trinity Evangelical Divinity School, over a, a multi-year period. Whenever I was passing through Chicago, uh, and and he does it different than I do. But why should that surprise me? He's different. You know, think of our physical kids. My my daughter is a little bit like me and a little bit like his like her mom and a little like neither of us, right? Sometimes parents look at their kids and say, where did he come from? I don't know. It's not, it's not you know, whether it's physically or emotionally and mentally. They're just different. It's, it's kind of God's way. He takes some of the spiritual DNA also of, of, of discipleship. And so my disciples, sometimes they'll joke about that they talk like me or their wives will say, he says that same phrase, right? That's, that's normal. That's what happens even in the physiological reproduction multiplication thing. Isn't that right? So... Understand that this plan that I'm going to share with you right now, the how-to is just our position. You're welcome to uh, make a decision about that however you wish. The main question that drives us in the how to disciple biblically, what did Jesus do with the 12? That's what we're thinking. We're thinking, what did he do from the, with the 12, and what can we take from that? We call them principles. What principles can we take from that as to how we disciple? The answer is in the Gospels, because that's where Jesus is walking with the 12. And so from the Gospels, uh, we, de we determine principles that drive how we do discipleship. <laughs> Key verse for us communicates what we're talking about. 2 Timothy 2.2. 2. It's really Paul. He's talking to Timothy. He says, he says, Timothy, the thing you heard me say in the presence of many witnesses, you entrust to reliable men who will teach others also. Four generations of believers in one verse. Paul the father, Timothy the son. Paul's talking about his grandsons and his great-grandsons. And he's coaching Timothy up of what he wants it to look like. Does that make sense? What he recommends, okay? It's really what, Je what Jesus did in John 17. He says, I pray for my disciples. I'm not only praying for you, I'm praying for those who come to know me through you. Does that make sense? Discipleship has always been part of the show. Not only from Jesus and the 12, but in the early church, it was, it was part of the DNA of how business was to be done. In fact, in Genesis 3, he gave us the first shot out of the gun when he said, be fruitful and multiply. He wasn't just talking physically. He was talking spiritually, be fruitful and multiply. This is the heartbeat, the driving heartbeat of a Jesus person. I'd contend that until somebody moves into giving their life away, they'll never feel the pleasure, the joy, nor the power of the Holy Spirit. They may have signs and wonders, which come and go for the record, okay? But in terms of deep fulfillment, deep fulfillment that kind of makes you want to get up in the morning because eternity's in your heart, and you're walking with people that eternity's in their heart. That's why in John, 3 John 4, John said, I have no greater joy than what? Than my children. children are walking in the faith. That was God's will. That's God's will for, I believe, I can biblically support every Jesus person. That we have no greater joy than that our children, and he wasn't talking physically there because there's a bunch of single people. That our children are still walking in the faith is what we were made to get pleasure out of. 
Now, I'll give you, I, I, I always take a risk at saying this, but I want it to be a picture. Um, so just you have an example of some real life thing. So I have three guys that I coached historically in the country. I'm going to take one of them. Uh, this guy's named Derek. He's from the inner city of Chicago. He's black. His, uh, his mom is white. His father's black. He was never in the home. He's never been around. He has occasional contact with them because they live in the same city now. He never was, was a father in any sense of the word in the world or spiritually. He was a single mom child in the inner city south, south uh, side of Chicago. He comes to play football in our school in Greenville, Illinois. Somewhere or another, in the goodness of God, God grabs hold of him. He gives his life to Jesus. He's now following. He married a missionary kid. He's got five children. He named his first, he named his first child Kess. That's my name. He named his first child my last name, Kessler. That's a weird name. I don't know how he sold his wife on that. It, I mean, truth, truthfully, right? At some point, they had to have a conversation what they're going to name it, right? But, but, but that kid in Chicago from a different race and culture names his kid after me. What do you think that feels like to me? Just saw him in Phoenix last week. He came make a special time. I got to see all his kids again. We took pictures. I'd be glad to send them to you. We had a, a super evening. I hadn't seen him for 10 years. We keep in touch regularly. I hadn't seen him for 10 years. If I had $10 million on the table waiting for me to take out in a bag right now versus one life that's transformed and God knows the transformation through that to others, what do you think I'd choose? I would be an idiot to take the money. An idiot! Fool, the Bible calls it. I'm sorry I'd be a little crass there. <laughs> do, you, do you understand that? You've, you've got to. Would you ever, if you got a birth kid, would you trade your birth kid for anything? If you're of sound mind, would you trade? If somebody said, here's a billion dollars, I can take care of every need. As long as you're on the planet, let me take your kid. No. It's like, what are you thinking? If we could translate that same thinking into the world of the kingdom, and if we could care about the lost and the found the way that we do as a physical, natural family thinking, oh, we'd make stinking hay in the kingdom. Unbelievable. And, and I would contend at the end of days, those people that are going to have the most joy on this planet and with him are those that have crowns that they can put at his feet. The things that God did through them in spite of themselves and their humanity for the sake of the advancement of the kingdom. That's pretty cool. That's pretty cool. When somebody has a child in the physical world, it's, it's, life's never the same, isn't that right? Right? And you always say, sound-minded thinking, sound, rational thinking, they'll say, one of the best days of my life. If not, you know, they always say marriage and the birth of my, right? But isn't there truth to that, though? Isn't that the way it's supposed to transfer into the world of the Spirit also? It is! So our goal again, our target, is people walk with God for a lifetime, finish strong, reproduce, and multiply. What is a disciple-making process this like? It's intentional. This is a big deal. We do it on purpose. It's intentional. We don't parent on accident. We have a plan. If you don't have a plan, you're planning on fail on whatever you're doing. It's intentional. It's strategic. We have a plan. We do it on purpose, and we have a plan. It's relational. This is involving people. 
Look up real quick. This is, we call this the fellowship wheel. Fellowship with God, the Word of God in prayer. Fellowship with man, relationships. We have two categories of people. Unbelievers, that's evangelism. Believers, that's discipleship. Everybody fits in one of those two quadrants. They're either discipling or being discipled or both. We call that the push-pull. Or they're unsaved. Those are the categories. Walk with God, be with people, have a plan to evangelize and disciple. Have a plan, make sure it's a good plan, execute the plan. What's your plan? What's your plan to evangelize? Do you have one? What's your plan to disciple? I presume most people are here are professing believers. In my experience, in the local church, wherever we go, whether it's leaders or the normal flock, we say, how many of you, just, just to get a gauge, do you feel comfortable if I had you come up here right now to articulate the gospel as if you were leading somebody in a role-play relationship to the kingdom? Most people in the local church, man, they get tight right now, right? Don't, don't ask me. Don't ask me. I don't, I'm not sure what I'd say. I, uh-huh, right? And if somebody said, I want to know Jesus and we had to role play, would you walk them through an invitation so that they'd come into a relationship by confession? Would you feel great about that? Odds are we'd take a bow out and we'd get the pastor or somebody else we think's more experienced. Isn't that right? That's a problem. When every member in the kingdom of God, I'm not coming to the local church, that too, but when every Jesus confessor does not have a plan to obey God, which the last thing he said when he pulled out is said, go make disciples. When we don't have a plan to do the last job he asked us to do before he left, that's a bad plan. That's a bad plan. What is your plan? That's the fourth one is practical. So intentional, strategic, relational. When the relational piece is a part now, discipleship is an appointment. It's not a meeting. It's not a one-on-one. We call it a, a rub. A relationship is a rub between two people. The, the less they rub, the less impact. Isn't that true? Fair point. The less time you have with somebody, the less chance you're going to impact them in general, right? The more time you rub, the chance is greater you'll have more impact. Fair the more forcefully you rub. So when I rub my hands, if I rub them light, I feel no friction, I feel no heat. If I push hard and I even do a few of them, I feel hot in my hands already. Does that make sense? So the quantity of force translates into heat. No force, you could meet with a guy for a thousand years. And that doesn't mean there's going to be much impact. Or you could meet with somebody a brief time, but it could have forceful impact. Is that right? How much better if you do what we call Q over Q? A quantity of force over a quantity of time. A quantity of relationship. It's not an appointment. It's a guy I might meet with on Tuesday morning as I do with a bunch of men. But it's a guy that I text and I email. I talk on the phone. I do Marco Polo. We see each other at local church. If we go to the same one, if we don't, I invite him to the ball game. If I go do to Home Depot, I'll send out a bulletin to all the guys. Say, anybody want to come with me, invite him over the house. It's a rub. It's a relational rub. The way you parent your physical child is by rubbing with him. Isn't that true? You don't give him a manual in his room and just to help him grow up. You're the manual. Jesus didn't take his guys to the rabbinical school. He was the rabbinical school. We are the rabbinical school and we're spending time with, because there's no substitute for time. Time is costly. Nobody has it. That's why not many people disciple. There's a variety of reasons. We'll get to that in a second. Fourth one is it's practical. So we are intentional, strategic, relational. We commit to want to be together. Chandler and I, I want to be with you and you want to be with me. And we work hard. And when you're adults, right, it's harder. When I, when I was a college coach, I had the guys there on the campus. They're going to be there for a semester or quarters at a time. It was a lot easier to disciple college football players when they were on campus and I was on campus. But when you get into a real adult, 
right? Who's got maybe married, maybe not. Who's got a job probably and might have some kids in the equation if they're married. It's hard to find time, is it not? You're going to have to work at it. And the only way it's going to happen that you'll get a rub enough to where there'll be impact is if you both want it bad and you spend time at it. There's got to be a quantity of rub for there to be a quantity of impact. And the fourth is practical. Our disciple-making process is practical. We actually are practicing habits and spiritual disciplines together to develop a vertical walk with God and a horizontal walk with people. We call that the Big Ten. The Big Ten are ten habits or spiritual distance, di uh, spiritual disciplines that, in, in my sense are necessary for somebody having his toolbox for him to have a chance, you understand the risk here with the war going on, to walk with God for a lifetime, finish strong, reproduce and multiply. What are those 10 tools? For me, in my family, of my guys, it's prayer, Bible reading, Bible memory, learning the books of the Bible through a Bible song, Bible study, not, stu not Bible study as in, there's enough knowledge running around of the Bible in the Bible belt. Even people that ain't even close to following Jesus, know the, know the stories. Because they probably go to a church or did. Does that make sense? Right? So for Bible study for us is we teach people how to use a study Bible to answer their questions and the questions of others. Because if I give you a fish, you eat for today. But you die tomorrow. If I, give you a, uh, if I teach you how to fish, you eat for a lifetime. That's a good thing. Happy for us too, because we both get to eat forever, but everybody else is kind of lost. If I teach you how to teach others how to fish, everybody eats forever. So we teach people how to use a, a study Bible in such a way that they can answer their own questions and the questions of others until they can teach them how to use a study Bible to answer their questions and we reproduce and multiply Bible study by learning how to study the Bible instead of sitting under somebody who tells us about the Bible and we sit there like a little bird eating from them forever as long as they'll keep feeding us. That's called enablement and dependency which is a problem in the local church. <clears throat> That was prayer, Bible reading, Bible memory, Bible song. Learning the 66 books in a row. They're going to learn it within a two-week span. To the tune of Gilligan's Island. It's the best plan I've ever found for somebody learning 66 books in a row. Genesis, Exodus, Viticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua, Judges, Ruth, and First and Second Samuel, First and Second Kings, and First and Second Chronicles, Ezra, Nehemiah, Esther, Job, and then the, there's little kids all over the world that can sing the Bible song and can write, if they could, 66 books in a row. Can we? There's a question. If you find a better tool, because the Bible says study to show yourself approved in part of competency, which is a helpful thing, would be to know your way around so you don't have to go to the appendix or the table of contents every time to find out where Malachi is or who's Haggai. Never heard of that guy before. The sixth of the Big Ten is the five questions. These are five questions we ask regularly within our community because we want them always thinking about the world because God's always thinking about the world. Who are you praying for to come to Jesus and what are you doing to continue a relationship with them? Who are you discipling? What are you doing to moving them forward in the Big Ten fundamentals? Who are your discipleship prospects? Because anybody who sells insurance realizes you're going to have to call ten people to get a sale. And you better have people in the funnel that you want as prospects for discipleship because you don't need to just disciple one. If you're going to have one, you might as well have three, and if you, you might as well have five. And 12 sounds like a pretty round number that's pretty good. So the odds are there's more out there than you think because the same Holy Spirit that was in Jesus for him to take care and feed well 12 people is in me and you. So if you wonder how many you're capable of, odds are more than you think. 
Fourth one, who are your mentors? And the fifth one is who are your mentor prospects? We always want our guys thinking about the lost and praying for them and doing something about them. You always pray and act and you act and pray. You don't just pray for folk and you don't just do stuff. You pray and act and act and pray and that goes together all the time just like the wedding and the marriage, just like discipleship and evangelism. So there's always an action piece to it. We want them discipling because the teacher always learns more than the student. Dr. Coleman would say this, if you're not discipling, what do we got to talk about when we get together? Right? When parents get together, what's one of their first questions? How's the kids? Even in the natural world, we talk about, our, how's your children? How's your family? What we do in the natural world, we see as a foreign concept in the body. It should be, how's your guys doing? What's happened with Johnny? Because we keep in touch about our families because they are our families. They're our brothers and sisters in the Lord. We want them always thinking about learning. We want, so Dr. Coleman, that line that they used in there on the stage about him saying last year as an 89-year-old, I'm just learning. I know the guy personally. He really means that. He has freaky core humility. You couldn't get him to take credit for things if you shot him with a gun. He just, it, it doesn't even, in his landscape, I presume it was when he was younger, probably got beat out of him by the Lord because you learn obedience by what you suffer. <laughs> so I'm presuming that whatever pride he did have, some point in the process of parenting physical kids and spiritual kids, he realized, you know, man, if it favor God, I'm a dead man. Yeah. And he believed that in the core of his being. So we're trying to reproduce lifelong learners. I have to model it. They follow my model. They do it themselves. And I, as the accountability partner to them, as their spiritual father for that season of three months or three years, whatever it is, is my job is to make sure that I come under them and serve them by leading, by serving. Does that make sense? Servant leader. So the world sees accountability as top-down. Did you read? Did you pray? What did you do? We see accountability as bottom-up. How's your reading going? Do you need some help? Do you need a better plan? Can I help you in all of that? What kind of leader we are is going to dictate what kind of disciples we reproduce. And of course, our grandchildren and great-children, great-grandchildren will reap the benefits or the curses of our ineffective, flawed parenting unless we have humility to ask forgiveness and give it a best shot and keep, keep at it. Five questions. So we're always getting them thinking about mentors. We're always getting them thinking about future mentors because I don't want them to say, I meet with you and I meet with Johnny. No, no. I want you to keep praying about who else, else is out there that's going to help you grow. It doesn't have to be mentors in Jesus stuff. They may want to know how to work on cars better, how to do construction, whatever their areas. I want them thinking that they want to learn from somebody because we all stand on the shoulders of others. Whose shoulders are you standing on? I want them thinking about standing on the shoulders of others. Because I want their children to be thinking that way. And they're not going to think about it if I don't think about it. And my grandchildren sure aren't going to think about it if I don't model it and hold accountable that that happened. Does that make sense? Again, accountability is just being there to ask questions. Accountability to us is giving somebody the right to ask you a question. How's your thought life? That's what accountability is. How's your thought life? How are things with your wife? Do you mind if I ask her how things are going in your marriage? Right? That'd be accountability. That's to help us reach our goal. That's not to see somebody fail. Accountability is to help us become who we want to become. And using the body, because the Lord says the way they're going to know our disciples is by our love for one another. How are they going to know our love for one another if we're not together? Sharing and caring about things that matter to us. 
Number seven is accountability questions. I just hit that. Number of questions that have to do with both the spiritual disciplines and life issues that you may struggle with. The eighth one is testimony. Be able to articulate your testimony. We do it in a three-minute thing where we teach them how to be concise and be clear about who they were before Jesus, what the day or the window that they converted, what that looked like, that process, and then who they are now. Gospel presentation and a gospel invitation. Those are the ten. Prayer, Bible reading, Bible memory, Bible song, uh, Bible study, the five questions, accountability, testimony, gospel presentation. Those are, if you look at them individually, minimum expectations commanded by God. So then the first question is, where are we in that? Prayer, think about this. Bible reading, Bible, these are all commands, right? Bible memory, study, show yourself approved, Right? thinking about evangelism, praying for people to come into the faith and for our disciples, being able to present the gospel or do a gospel invitation, share our testimony. These are all mandated minimums. They were never options. Do we have a plan ourselves to grow in them? And with our disciples, if we're being obedient on that, do we have a plan for them to learn it and reproduce and multiply it? Those are the questions we talk about. Habits, spiritual disciplines. All ten of these things have to be to us sustainable. That means they'll last. To the end of time, reading the Bible is going to be a big deal. Does that make sense? Being able to articulate your testimony is going to be, they got to be sustainable, they got to be reproducible. When I share with Johnny, it's got to be something that Johnny simply can share with Stevie in such a way that Stevie will stare with Bobby and it'll continue till the end of, the, end of time. Sustainable, reproducible, oral. When I go to New Guinea, I can't, I can't go down to the Walgreens and get a copy machine. So if my discipleship entails materials other than the Word of God, it's not sustainable. It's sustainable, in, but I don't want to have a discipleship plan that only works in America. I want a discipleship plan because some of my guys, if they're obedient, are going to go. I have a, there's a missionary in Macedonia. There's some guys in Berlin working with refugees. They're, they're part of my family. And when they go into a foreign country, particularly a third world or a second world country, they can't take stuff along. And if God actually moves and more people convert and we have resource materials and stuff that has to be part of our discipleship process, then they, they get shorted. Does that make sense? But if I'm the rabbinical school and our tools are reproducible, sustainable, oral, and simple, then we have a chance that in New Guinea they can sing the Bible song in their language. And we got a chance in Burundi, we could go there tomorrow and articulate the gospel and teach them our 10-verse sequence, A-W-C-F-R-O-G-R-O-L-O-C-F-R-O-G-R-O-L that tells us about the gospel presentation, admit, wages, confess, forgive, repent, yada, yada. What's your plan to reach the world if one of your disciples actually goes to the world? That he can then have a disciple or can come alongside an already converted person and walk them up so they can walk with God for a lifetime, finish strong, reproduce, and multiply. What's the plan? That's our plan. Last one is simple. Simple, just kiss principle. Keep it supernaturally simple. Just keep it supernaturally simple. The Word of God in prayer. Just keep it supernaturally simple. The Word of God in prayer. Those two things alone are bigger than nuclear bombs. They have, more, they have, they have the sustaining power of the universe in those two things when they're together. If you only have the word without prayer, ain't gonna happen. He'll advance the kingdom just because he's good, but it ain't gonna be through us if we don't know the word of God, memorize the word of God, study the word of God, use the word of God, speak the word of God, and pray. Or pray first, whichever way you wanna look at it, and they both gonna go. Walk with God, be with people, have a plan, have a plan, make sure it's a good plan, execute the plan. What do I have? 
25 minutes. Beautiful. So here's some distinctions. Now, when I say distinction, because everybody parents different, when I look at the parenting of the people I respect in the country, the spiritual parent, the discipleship, when I look at my brothers that are practicing it and they're parenting, I find there are certain things that some do, but they seem to be rare, but I think they're really, really a big deal. I think they're an incredibly big deal. The first distinctive is that in our uh, excuse me, in our discipleship plan, I lost my notes here, I'm killing myself, is that we have tools in our toolbox that actually spiritual disciplines that you practice yourself so you can walk with God. Does that make sense? A lot of discipleship is they do Bible studies. Does that make sense? That doesn't mean they study the Bible. That means somebody who knows more talks to those who know less about the Bible and they learn doctrine that way. Does that make sense? If I cut you open and asked you, do you think America needs more Bible knowledge to reach the world, what would you say? I'm suspecting you'd say no. It'd be nice if they obeyed what they knew, right? That would be a real kicker because that was also part of that first, the Great Commission. He alluded to it a number of times there. God said, make disciples and teach them to what? Obey. To obey. So without obedience, you're making disciples, they ain't going to bear any fruit. <clears throat> so, our second distinction, and this is a big one, is our target is multiplication. Now, here's another thing that my observation is in the American church discipleship movement, not here, thankfully, because you'll hear it over and over in these two days, is multiplication is the end point. This is not about me. It's not about Chandler and I. It's not about us growing together and us knowing God more. It's about us investing in the life of another in such a way that they know and do invest in another. If I just reproduce myself, that's called addition. Good for us, nuts for you. But if I reproduce myself in a such a way that he knows that he's to reproduce himself in, in such a way that that person will know, and we keep doing that, you end up with what we call the multiplication table. So that little column on the right is me right here and you. That's us. We're walking with God by ourselves. Then we have a revelation. Oh, dang that, but we're supposed to share our faith and people are supposed to come to know Jesus. Now we're in the category of evangelism. And if we led one person to the Lord a day, excuse me, a year, That'd be, a, that'd be a cool deal, wouldn't it? Because I think most people in the local church have never had the trans, that transformational experience of actually leading somebody in a relationship. Is that fair? Right? We farm it out to the professionals. But if we did have one a year, and if we lived 30 years, there'd be 31 people, me and 30 folks new in the faith. That'd be a pretty cool deal, wouldn't it? If when you died, you realized you'd led 30 people to the Lord. I'm not talking about numbers. I'm talking about a, a, a thought and a concept, okay? But that same guy, who leads somebody to the Lord or comes along somebody. I meet him after he's, I meet Chandler after he's converted and he's never had a spiritual father and he wants one and I want him and we start an engagement. If next year I work with Frank, Frank and Chandler works with Dakota. Dakota, I like that. I was from, I'm from North Dakota for the record. That's pretty cool. So if in year two I meet with Frank and if year three Frank with meets with somebody and I meet with Mike and Chandler meets with somebody else and Dakota meets with Isaac. Isaac. And if we do that for 30 years, it's one billion. The difference between reproducing myself, leading somebody in a relationship, and helping them grow, which is rare, 
and doing it in such a way that they know they're to do it with somebody else and it's going to repeat the process to the end of time. You touch a billion people. That's why when we talk about needing resources and money, did Jesus raise funds? He didn't have technology. He didn't even like big rallies. He didn't have them on accident, not even on purpose. Seemed to be unconcerned about measurables. Focused on 12 guys when he had a whole nation he could have touched. Didn't have technology, didn't have money, didn't fundraise, didn't have TVs. What's your plan? In 2,000 years, there's going to be 7.6 billion people. Jesus, what's your plan to reach them deeply? I'm going to get 12 school teachers and a tax guy and a little fish guy, and we're going to tap out on the world. Father says, good plan. Here we are, right? See, we, if I faithfully work with Chandler... And he faithfully works Dakota, and I work with Frank, and if I just stay in that, and that's only one a year in a hypothetical model. In 33 years, that's 8 billion people. That's more than living the planet. That's why in this generation, we absolutely can reach the world if we do our job. And our job was go make disciples and teach them how to obey. It isn't about rallies. It's not about we need more. You don't need more stinking money. That's why in Sierra Leone, they can, they can multiply like rabbits. Right? Because they're following the principles of the Gospels of Jesus with the Twelve. It's costly now, right? So question, why don't more people do it? If that's the math, and that's freaky, that's freaky cool. But in the early years, it looked like, what's he doing slugging away at Twelve guys? They just walk around the countryside, right? Oh, no, no, he's going to reach the nations with those Twelve. Because they're going to reach another Twelve who will reach another Twelve. And here we are. Why don't people do it? <clears throat> if it really is that simple... I find there's uh, four reasons in my sense. First is ignorance. Ignorance is a Latin word. It doesn't mean people are stupid. It just means to not know. E means opposite. Nor means to know. People don't know. I never heard about this. I never heard about it my whole life until I read a little booklet, Master Plan of Evangelism, and then I happened to run into the author. I'd never heard about it. I did what I had heard you're supposed to do when four football players approached me in the fall of 1992 and said, would you meet with us? I thought... Yeah, I, I need to do that. I, I'm supposed to do that. They're coming to me. I'm 37. They're 18 to 22. Probably should help them. What should I do with them? Well, probably should pray a little bit. Probably should read a little bit. Probably should talk a little bit about life, what's going on. That's what I did. We now call that the little bit plan. Everybody can do the little bit plan. Everybody can do the little bit plan. Can you read? Yeah. Can you, can you talk? Yeah. Can you talk to God? Yeah. You can disciple. Just use the little bit plan. I think we can use a better plan than a little bit plan, but if that's all you use, you can, you can walk with God for a lifetime, finish strong, reproduce, and multiply. But I think that amount of time you spend on developing a relation with somebody, I think you can cover more ground than just a little bit plan. Here's what discipleship, well, here's another, here's another one, a problem. It's an American problem. Picture the Jordan River. The Jordan River runs into the Sea of Galilee. Jordan River is alive. Fisher in that deal, right? And in the Sea of Galilee, it's fed people for as long as people have lived near it. It's fed people. And still does to this day. People fish it. And out of the Sea of Galilee comes the Jordan River. And it goes into another sea. It's called the Dead Sea. The Dead Sea is dead. There is no life in it. The same Jordan River, the same Jordan River goes into the Sea of Galilee. The sea goes in the Dead Sea. What's the difference? And one of the seas it comes out. And the other one, it sits there. 
And if you walk with somebody and it's about you and him and growing in God, you're going to become an Amy Grant song called Fat Baby in the 70s, which means you're going to smell and not even know it. You're going to smell like the Dead Sea smells because it's all about us, 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 and we haven't even begun to do the first thing, which was the Great Commission lifestyle. And we wonder why Christianity is boring. We wonder why the church feels like, ah... It's because they haven't jumped into the Sea of Galilee and let the river come out of them that came into them. In fact, he says, the more you empty, the more I fill. It never runs dry. You'll never be short of love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faith, self-control, or power if you just do what I ask. That's pretty cool. It's there for the taking for everybody. First is ignorance. The way we break ignorance is by these kinds of conversations. We break ignorance about discipleship by having a conversation about discipleship for me, I use teasers like Dawson Trotman's Born to Reproduce booklet. If you've never heard of that, I encourage you to get it. A little booklet you can get on the internet for who knows what. Half a latte a piece, and you get a bunch of them, hand them out like candy, and start fishing for disciples to see if they read that and say, I like that. Because they read that and see how God moved through Dawson Trotman and reaching people in the naval shipyards in Los Angeles, and they start saying, I can do that. Well, of course you can, but they never even knew it. So we got to give them an opportunity to at least decide if they want to choose it or not with an articulation that is simple, sustainable, reproducible, and oral. A conversation. Does that make sense? Ignorance is the first one. Second one is unbelief. They don't, they don't believe you got to do it that way. I think I just need to grow. I just need to love God. Right? We talk about the four phases of learning. First stage is I got to be born again. You got to be born again. Second stage, I got to go fast now because I got sting in 12 minutes. The second one is I want to know Jesus bad. This is where we stop in America. Jesus, I want to know you. I want to know, oh Lord, oh Lord, oh Lord. We go to places with signs and wonder conferences because we want to get touched by God. Oh, but who's that about? Who's this all about? It's all about you. It wasn't about you. It was about the world. So this is, oops, it's not about me. It's about others. There's a recognition, a revelation if they'd been discipled, they wouldn't have to take time bouncing between these two. A revelation that Jesus was meant to be given away. And the way that you tap into the power and the fruit is to give yourself away to another person who will then give himself or herself away. But most of us, myself included, we bounce back and forth between these two. Because I got dreams and I got goals and I want a house and I want to be married. I want some kids. I want to do some neat stuff, right? And we didn't realize, no, I thought you signed on this line that said, I surrender all. As in, not my will, but yours be done, Lord. I'd like this. But then we'd go into Paul's category. We'd say, I've been healthy. I mean, excuse me, I've been well-fed and I've been hungry. I've been shipwrecked. He went through his whole litany of stuff. I've learned the secret of being content in each and every situation, right? Christ in me, right? That's, that's the target. The third, so we break, we break unbelief with this. So, okay, tell me this. So what you're saying to me, Johnny, what you're saying to me, Johnny, is you want... I got on this table $30 and I got a billion on that table and you want to take the 30. Is that what, is that what you're saying there, right? So we, we, break the, we break that lie that it doesn't have to be like that. You ain't going to reach the world with addition. My contention is if you don't hate addition, you're never going to multiply. Now what do you mean you don't hate addition? You mean I'm going to hate people coming in the faith? No. You know the Bible says hate mother, father, sister, brother, wife, children for the sake of the gospel, right? Did he mean we should hate them? No, why do we say that? Well, we know because we know the Bible and what it says about how we're to love and die for our mates and serve and submit and all that stuff, right? So why did he say it? He was throwing the contrast, the contrast between the love we should have for God and the love we should have for our most intimate relationships should be like as if you hate them. 
Does that make sense? He really said that. That's not my opinion. So if you're struggling with that, go find it in the Word. That's why when I say I hate addition, it doesn't mean I don't hate people coming to the faith. When they're not parented and they don't stay in the game and walk with God for life, compared to them just coming into the faith and them being a player in the kingdom, I hate that. Does that make sense? If you don't hate addition, if you don't hate just being in a Bible study or having a Bible study so you and I can feel good about our Christian growth, until that upsets your stomach, you're never going to disciple. Because this one is not too costly and this one is going to cost you everything. But at the end of the funnel is more than you can ask or imagine. I never stinking knew what the pleasure would be of my little baby girl. I should show you some Marco Polos where, hi daddy, and drawing pictures on the Dealey Bob machine, you know, moves me. I never had any idea that Christianity was what it is once I began to disciple and felt the pleasure as 3 John 4 talked about. No greater joy. There's no greater joy than to get a phone call. Dr. Coleman sits around his house. People call him all day long. True, John? We know. All, we've stayed with him a few days. All day long they're calling in. Hey, Doc, just wanted to say I'm thinking about you. You know, the guy's 64 years old, but he was his disciple 50 years ago, right? What does that feel like to him? To have a guy care enough to call back and say, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Oh, man. Do you think I want money? you think I want a house? Think about a new, nice car, another one, a better upgrade. Shoot. I'm eating gravel. Unbelievable. What's the lies? We try to diffuse two primary lies. The one is I can't do it. We diffuse that with a little bit plan. Can you talk? Can you read? Can you, can you pray? Yeah, okay, just do that with somebody and teach them how to do it with somebody else. The second lie, of course, is I don't know enough. And then we say in the land of the blind, the one-eyed man is king. Listen to that. Chew on it if you ever heard it. Right? <laughs> so if you're saved and everybody else is unsaved, you actually see in a dark room. So you know more than they do because you know, you know enough like the woman at the well just go back to her village say, come and see the guy. If all you say is come and see the guy who changed my life, that's one eye, right? Now most of us here, I expect you have two eyes or you wouldn't be here. <laughs> which means the vast majority of the body has one eye. And so you got no-eyed people that you absolutely can show Jesus and you got one-eyed people that really it's hard. Driving is hard with one eye. I, 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 I'm, I, sometimes I close my eye and think, how could a person with one eye drive on the highway? You know what I'm saying? They're going to they're gonna hurt somebody or hurt themselves. Isn't that right? That's like believers with one eye. They're going to hurt somebody, themselves or somebody, unless somebody walks them through developing that second eye. That's our job. In the land of the blind, the one-eyed man is king. So I was asked today about how early do you think before people should disciple? Now, <laughs> like if they were converted yesterday, they start discipling tomorrow because they got one eye and the other guy's got less than one eye, right? You go to McDonald's, if you flip burgers, if I'm there for a week flipping burgers and some new kid gets hired from my high school, who do they have train them? Me, I've only flipped them for a week, but he's never flipped them, so they say, oh, go teach him how to flip, right? That's discipleship. You're in it in a week in business. You don't think twice about teaching somebody what you need to do. But in the faith, we feel like, no, no, I got to get it down. I got to be sinless first. Good luck with that one. I need more time, right? <laughs> now, so in our discipleship, 
they start discipling within the month. They're meeting with somebody. It's either somebody on their disciple prospect list or somebody that's in my quiver that I give to them who they can work with, but they're going to be discipling now because the teacher always learns more than the student, and we need them to learn as fast as possible, and until they learn to give their life away and teach other people how to pray, read, Bible memory, Bible song, blah, 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 they're not going to grow as fast as they can unless they're responsible because you grow up when you become responsible don't you I got two kids that aren't responsible they just take care of themselves I smile about the day they got to pay their own bills you know what I'm talking about there's a big jump about responsibility so make your disciples responsible immediately so they begin to grow and can learn about parenting and start appreciate your parenting is that fair here's the last thing final points Part of, the, part of the, uh, the, the, the introduction was discipling biblically the master plan way, what it is and what it isn't. I want to share what it is and what it isn't now so you get that part of the title. We are, in our discipleship, we are not uh, materials and resource driven. I, I explained to that why. Rather, we wish to be driven by the Word of God, the Holy Spirit, and prayer. That's what we want driving us. And we on purpose don't use outside materials because I don't want people being tremendous in some outside book when they don't even know the word yet or much. And frankly, how could you ever get your fill of the word that you have to move on to something else because you're bored with it? That would be a problem in my discipling. Does that make sense? Now, we do use the Bible, and we obviously, Word of God, we, use supplement, we supplement the Master Plan Evangelism because I want them to read for themselves what I've been articulating to them. Does that make sense? But if I go to Ghana, Ghana, I don't need it because I can articulate it without it because it's oral and it's simple. Number two, we are not church program driven. Rather, we wish the discipleship drive the local church. We want discipleship to drive a local church. We're committed to the local church. We practice discipleship within the local church. However, we're not a church program. Do you understand the difference? If it's a program and not a relationship, it ain't going to fly for long. It just won't. It's got to be a relationship. It is not a program. It's not something you inst It's a want to, not a have to. If you force people to have children, they're not going to parent well, for the record. Three, we are not small group driven. Rather, we wish to drive small groups. Here's what we say. Where you find small groups, you may have no discipleship. But where you find biblical discipleship, you'll have small groups. Because they'll be meeting with one or more, and that means there's two or more, which means there's a small group. We are not Bible study driven. Rather, we wish to teach students how to use a study Bible so they can teach others how to use a study Bible so they can study the Bible instead of being dependent. Number four, we are not measurables driven. Rather, we're multiplication driven. If you look at the measurables here, so I was the head of discipleship at a, at a, at a large church. That, that didn't embrace the vision. And it's fair for them after year one, they paying me a full-time wage and I got four guys, right? You, you're working for a year and you got four? Four? Yeah, I got four, but dag now, but if you just hang in there, man, I'm going to have eight billion. Just hang it. The plan works. Do the math. Do the math. Do the math. That's why you got to find somebody if you're in a church to either do it yourself under the radar or find some head pastor who's going to embrace it, like Robbie Gallaty, who we know that does that, right? Because if it's, not, if it's not driven, it's going to be hard to happen unless you do it yourself. And that's why we're all safe, because we can always do it ourselves. And we look at the math, and it doesn't matter how slow it goes. It goes slow a long time. Slows all. I think three years, man. Three years, he didn't increase. He never added one guy to the 12. Yeah, he had 70 sent out at some point, and he knew 500 guys showed up when he came back to the earth. But for the record, 12 was his game. So you find a few and you invest in them sacrificially and you teach them to do likewise. Here's discipleship in a nutshell, then I'll be John, done, John. Here's discipleship. I do it, I do it, you watch, you do it, I watch. Repeat. I do it, I do it, you watch, you do it, I watch, you do it. 
your goal is to work yourself out of a job. Work yourself out of a job as fast as you can within reason so they're self-sustaining and interdependent with you and with their own children. Does that make sense? Jesus walked with the Father. They watched him walk with the Father. He watched them walk with the Father. He said bye. They walked with the Father. Right? I eat food. My five-year-old watches me eat food. She tries to eat food. As I watch her eat food, she gets better and better toward the hole the more she shoots the gun. And then eventually I'm not there and she can eat by herself. Does that make sense? Everything is learned that way. You walk with God. Have them walk with God. Watch you walk with God. You watch them walk with God, right? And then you don't need to be there anymore because they got their own family line already because they reproduced and multiply. Okay, I have to end because they told me to. Let me see if there's any quick thing. I have up here for the record, if you want to just look at stuff. Multiplication table. If you want any of this stuff, you got to reach out to me because I don't got handouts on purpose because I want you to want it. This is called circles. People don't know where their disciple prospects are. They're thinking, I don't know anybody. you got six circles of about 100 people in your life right now that you've never even thought about. They're either unsaved or they're saved, which means they're a prospect one way or the other. This is what we use as a worksheet to get them thinking. This is the Big Ten, if you ever want to see it. What the Big Ten is, those ten things I talked about. This is the ten-verse sequence we learned. We use that for the gospel presentation invitation. It's the first ten verses they memorize. Two a week and five weeks, they know ten verses. And they begin practicing in group setting, articulating the gospel as a role play. Here's the five questions about evangelism, discipleship. This is how we teach people to pray. Tacos, Thanksgiving, adoration, confession, other self. You'll find little five-year-olds that can tacos pray, which is very cool. Here's accountability question stuff. Again, here's business card if you want to write me. Um, my website is scottykessler.com. I'm not advertising. I'm just saying if you want stuff, you can go on scottykessler.com and, and on the top link it will say discipleship. You'll find a bunch of dogs. I would love to keep in touch with you because I want to be with people that are hot and want to be hot. Because I get hot when I'm around hot people. So I find the hottest people I can and I just, I just feel the burn, man. It's a Bible verse. He who walks with the wise grows wise. He who walks with fools suffers hard. That's all we're trying to practice. You've been listening to the Disciple Makers Podcast. Have you signed up for the next National Disciple Making Forum? Every year, disciple makers from across the country and around the world gather together in one place to learn disciple making. Save your seat and register now. You can find a registration link at discipleship.org. At checkout, use promo code PODCAST to get 20% off your tickets. In addition to this podcast, you'll find many other great discipleship resources at discipleship.org as well. May the Lord bless you as you seek to grow as a disciple maker.